This is Ira Glass of This American Life, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's Hurika Nabolu. All of a sudden, like, Apocaster became popular, and so they had to develop a character that wasn't intended to be developed and you know, they added a great deal of depth and the character is one of the more thoughtful characters over the like 30 years but you know it came from this core of a stereotype that kind of you know once you open that it's hard to go back right hurry is a stand-up comedian that you've seen gosh all over the place say so he's been on netflix he's been on jimmy kimmel he's been on uh, the late show with david letterman when that was still on uh he's also the director of the documentary the Problem with Apu, which you might have seen, and uh, as he discovered, people don't have a problem with Apu. We discussed that. It's a very interesting conversation we have with Hurry. Stay tuned for that. We have a song that we coming up from, The Tribe of Good. I think you're really going to dig it. And let's see. Let's get to a dumb bit. One of my nieces uh, friended me on Facebook, and I, I really am lazy about getting back to people friend requesting me, but I finally did because, um, uh, you know, my, everybody said, well, you, you, you should, and, you know, it's, and this is not to pick on my niece at all, but what happened here was something that happened to a lot of people that I'm friends with on Facebook, of course. You know, we had a, uh, one of these situations. It's Facebook, not Factbook. Yes, you may have seen this in your Facebook feed from somebody. Unfortunately, it was my niece and somebody else, by the way, who posted this too. I'll get to that in a second. But it was the, you probably saw this, uh, the meme that says, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders said that the debate last night that he wants a minimum wage to be $15 per hour. And then it shows the math for that. It all works out, $31,000 a year. And by the way, I'm so tired of people saying that we should not have a higher minimum wage because those jobs aren't real jobs. You're not supposed to stay in the job, whatever the kind of jive they're trying to run by us. Look, if you're going to value work, folks, then put value on work. Case closed. Then the, below that, Bernie Sanders wants free health care for all. And there's some, it says that he wants to have 52% tax on anybody making over $29,000. Okay, that's all a bunch of jive. And uh, so I thought, I, you know, messaged Fangirl, who's up in Cleveland. I said, how am I not going to respond to your uh, cousin's post? And she goes, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I, but I finally resisted. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to see if anybody corrects this. Anybody in the family? We have 17 mutual friends, most of them relatives. I think all of them relatives. And then she has 237 friends total on her own. I'm thinking, well, let's see if anybody corrects this. And so far, uh, I'm looking at the page, and here's what I got. Yeah, not a soul. So one person shared it, and that person's settings were set so I could see that post. And a person below that corrected it and showed the link from Snopes that people have been largely refuting this with. And then uh, a friend of mine from high school did the same thing. And she wrote, interesting, and then put this up there. And a lot of people said, oh, by the way, that's that's not true, love. And someone posted the Snopes link there as well. And then someone below that, a little bit below that, posted, ha, 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 you believe Snopes. You know, like we're all a bunch of idiots. And then I wrote under that, well, no, of course not. I believe random memes with no facts to support them. And people loved that comment. So anyway, uh, yeah, just... Still in in 20, whatever, it's February 28th, 2020, and people still are believing memes with no facts to support them, not looking up anything, not even Googling, does Bernie Sanders want to raise taxes 52%, which you could do just in like two seconds, and uh, nobody wants to do that, and, and nobody realizes. It's Facebook, not Factbook.
Hurry Kondabolu is a stand-up comedian you've seen all over the place. You've seen him on Netflix, Jimmy Kimmel, Comedy Central. He, he does a podcast with uh, W. Kamal Bell called Politically Reactive. And here now is our interview with Hurry Kondabolu. So, um, well, good to talk to you. It's always good to talk to a comedian I haven't talked to before. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And so, um, so I guess a, a good question uh, I always like to ask is, uh, were you a funny kid growing up? I know you kind of address it in your special a little bit, but were you like the funny kid or did uh, you have an interest in comedy and kind of pursued it from that direction? A, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think I was a funny kid, but um, I definitely wasn't the class clown. I felt like I was definitely like a class comedian, if that means anything. It was like I would take in stuff the teachers said and actually make thoughtful, funny commentary and remarks versus just disturbing the class, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had really funny friends. I think my friends were far funnier than I was, and they also loved stand-up and other types of comedy. So, you know, we kind of like studied it together without realizing that's what we were doing. Like, you don't feel like you're studying art when you're just watching comedy, but... You know, that's definitely what we were doing, looking back on it. Um, and I loved stand-up. You know, I saw Margaret Cho perform when I was 16 or 17, and it was kind of clear to me that, like, not that I was 14 or 15, honestly, but it was clear that this was something I really enjoyed. I liked the idea that a single person and a microphone was enough to create art for great numbers of people, and I was really excited about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I always appreciated humor. My mom is extremely funny. My brother and I have a great camaraderie and we're really funny together. Um, so the idea of doing it on my own seemed like something that was within my grasp. And I just love the art form. Did you have any other alternate career path in mind or did you get focused on comedy pretty early? No, no, no. Comedy was something that was a hobby. Like it's something I loved and I, I plan to always do in some capacity, but especially if we're talking about like 10, 15 years ago, stand up especially as a South Asian person making a living seemed impossible. Like, you know, Aziz just started to get somewhat noticeable. Um, Mindy Kaling was in the office. But that was about it, really, in terms of big public figures. Russell Peters had been around, but he wasn't big in the U.S. So it, it was very, like, like why, you know, I just didn't see the, a realistic possibility of me turning this into a career, so I just did it for fun. And when I was in Seattle, I was working as an immigrant rights organizer. And, you know, my other passion has been always been like social justice movements. And comedy was something I did at night and it took off. I built a following. I got discovered by the HBO Comedy Festival on Jimmy Kimmel Live, all in a matter of months, you know. So it's something that was not a career goal because I didn't think it was real. Maybe it was a dream, but in a really distant way. And then it kind of took off and, uh, you know, it became my career. You know, the window was open and I, I decided to go through it as opposed to letting it close. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's how I got here. Did you feel like, you know, do, you know, working for those causes you believed in, you could use comedy at least in some way to make an impact on those issues? I don't, I mean, not at the job. I mean, I think anybody who has humor and can keep things light is good in a workplace. I just think that it makes life a, a little less stressful, and that's great. Um, but no, I, I don't think I actively in my workplace did anything with humor to make things 
you know, to further the, the causes. Uh, you know, I definitely talked about big topics when I was on stage, but I didn't necessarily bring what I was doing at work to the stage. You know, those were different things. I did feel a degree of, like, catharsis, though. You know, you spend a day working on really hard issues, and you're seeing families being divided, and it's really heavy. And then you go to a comedy club and are able to perform and make people laugh. You know, there is some kind of relief in that. But, yeah, it wasn't like a direct correlation. Yeah, and I guess even now your stuff is, um, a lot of it is just observational uh, and social stuff, not necessarily social issues, but just, you know, in addition to the, you know, social issues, but there's a lot of day-to-day stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of day-to-day stuff, and I appreciate you mentioning it. I think sometimes I get I get lost in the, like, the larger stuff that I talk about, like the larger, like maybe more... Uh, word is but maybe edgier politically minded stuff i think that maybe you know takes precedence because it's a little flashier in some ways but yeah i feel like to me you want to be as well-rounded as possible and even when you're talking about bigger issues that you're passionate about you have to find ways to make them accessible and sometimes that's dipping into pop culture or dipping into the day-to-day in ways that people can relate to um so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it has a presence, but I don't think it's really, like, my work that I used to do that has a presence. It's more like the kind of person I am is someone who looks at the picture, and so that's always going to be present in the work I do. That's who I am. And I know a lot of people might also know you not only from your comedy, but from uh, the film you did, uh, the, the the Problem with Apu. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that was uh, an, an interesting uh in, in subject in that you know I, I that's something I always wondered about with The Simpsons that with such a forward thinking show, and I think a lot of us maybe felt this way in the back of our minds are kind of like well why are they doing it that way I mean even right. a lot of the humor what didn't come from the fact that he was uh, Indian uh, most of it came from the fact that he was uh, that just the business he was in and but still the the voice being characterized by you know uh, by a white a white guy, uh, just all seemed kind of odd. When did that kind of first strike you as, and really come to your attention, right? When the show started or? Well, I was a kid when it started, right? I was like nine or 10. So I don't think it hit me until, you know, high school when you start to realize that, you know, I'm still a huge Simpsons fan despite all of it, but, um, you know, seeing, like realizing who was doing the voices and realizing that was the only thing we had there wasn't anything else. It wasn't like, oh, this character came out and here's 10 more different things. It was like that was the one for a really long time. Yeah. And uh, I think that is when you start to realize, hey, this kind of sucks. That this is the the only thing uh, that we got. And, you know, certainly, you know, I think initially the, the goal with that character was to make it a one-off. Like, or, you know, it would be in a couple of episodes, but yeah. all of a sudden, like, that character became popular and, so they had to develop a character that wasn't intended to be developed, and you know they added a great deal of depth. And the character is one of the more thoughtful characters over the course sure. of like thirty years. But you know it came from this core of a stereotype that kind of you know once you open that, it's hard to go back, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean it's funny. You know, I thought it was something a lot of people considered or thought was odd. And then after releasing the film, I realized that most people did not view it that way, and didn't see anything wrong with it, never questioned it, and that was yeah, that. See, you know, I didn't realize it was an uphill battle until after I released the film. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it's, I, like I said, it's, it's me as a as a white guy stole the reaction of like, it's still, I get where they're going, and like you said, they did develop that he got married, he got, and if you think about it, he's more successful than Homer, he owns his own business, yeah. for God's sake. So, right, right. but yeah, but like you're saying, it, you, they, where they started from was, you know, still back in the late 80s, still back when we were, we were kind of dumb, uh, you know, not we've gotten a whole lot smarter, I don't think, recently, but still, it's, um, yeah, and, and it's what's strange, like, I'm like half French, and they they had a French character on there once, and I, I didn't care. But French people are still white people, so it isn't the same thing at all. And people, I know people always try to play that card and go, "Well, you know, what's the difference between if it's that and if it's somebody?" Well, you know, the French are the most hated of the Europeans. I can attest to. It's right. still very different because we're we're still white people. So it, who cares? It rolls right off the back. Where like you're saying, yeah, if that's all you know about it, you might think th- that might be old, people's only exposure to Indian culture is like, oh. They'll work in convenience. And, and it was. Yeah, for and a long time. For a really long time, and yeah. Was... And I feel like that context, I think a lot of people, either because they're younger or they weren't paying attention, that context is important. And I think you know, that was one of the main points of the film is that's the context that it came in and, and the way it was for a long time. And it took a while for it, there to be a diversity of points of view and ideas and characters. And the thing is, you know, that's important because, like, the broader you see a group of people, the more you realize they're a group of individuals like everything else. And right. that's, that's what you work towards. Like, how do you find different shades of human, but you find the relatability in all of them? Do you think people are becoming or are diving deeper in, in things like that? Or because if you look at even before that, back into the 80s with, you know, like, John Hughes, as great as those films are, there's still yeah. things in there that are like, wow, we were Oh, yeah, we're definitely more thoughtful now. There's, like, no question. And I also think there's a a newer generation that, you know, is very aware, is very active, finds it kind of repulsive or strange that we were the way we were about that. It's not universal, but I definitely think that I see more of that than I've ever seen before. And it's, it's really shocking and nice that, like, oh, people are actually finding it odd that we behaved in this way before. And what do you think about this nonsense of people saying, "Oh, PC culture, everything's too PC"? Okay. I don't, I, I don't know what that means. It just sounds yeah. like people saying, "Oh, the kids these days." That's every generation. <laughs> they think that you can't say as much, you can't do this. Right. What What it means is more people have voices, and that's what it's been in every generation, and can tell you you are wrong, and that is new. That is the new thing, and if. if I'm not, you know, there are moments where I feel like oh, we're not allowed to have more thoughtful conversations because um, we're afraid of offending each other. So I do see that point. But often what I see is a kind of institutionalized politeness, which is what, you know, yeah. the comedian Stuart Lee calls it. He calls it institutionalized politeness. And look, it's flawed, but it's definitely better than, you know, what we had before. You know, I would rather have a frustration in how to phrase a thing and have to hear over racism regularly. So to me, I feel like this is a, a better world. And if that means that we have to be mindful of what we say, we should be mindful of what we say. That's how you, that's politeness. That's how you respect other human beings. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and also this idea of free reign to say whatever you want, uh, for a lot of us, that was not possible, right? Because if you're a person oh, yeah. of color and you have free reign to say whatever you want, it might cost you work. It might cost you opportunities. And so there's a check on that. And now we're in an era where, like, you know, there's still free reign. You can say whatever you want, but there's repercussions, as there always should have been. That's just how societies work. You can say whatever you like. You can 
say terrible things to me to my face, you have that right. And if I react physically or verbally, that's, you know, that's something that you have to prepare for. My right is to reply to you verbally. But like if something else happens, that comes with how communication works. You put something out there, there is something that comes back. You're not throwing like a, a message in a bottle into an ocean. That's not what it is. I think that's how people treat, treat like speaking. Like I'm just saying stuff and just see what happens. That's not what happens. There is a reaction pretty immediately when you say stuff to other people. And I, I teach comedy writing to young people, and I, I came up with this formula is the, the punchline has to be greater than the setup. And that's a really good measuring stick. So if you want to talk about something, just make sure that you it, that it is actually funny and is not you know just some like trope. And I teach them what a trope is because you know I think we've had and using my earlier example, I, you know I've I've heard all the French surrender jokes I've heard for the full like, time. You know? Let's move on. Let's find something else funny about the. We find something else funny about the French and knock yourself out. But um, and Jay Leno had a great line on Marin's podcast a, a couple years ago. He said, "You know what? Change your material. We don't laugh about that stuff anymore." <laughs> okay. Right, 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 right. I mean, that, so, I mean that, and that is the truth, isn't it? Like that, that's it, it's the inability to grow, the unwillingness yes. to grow, and I feel like as an artist, that's a really bad place to be in. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, sometimes there's a you can use these things as a, as a little shorthand leaping off point, but yeah, you, you've got to you know dig deeper into not not even in just that kind of stuff, but into everything really, you know, be it a political yeah, I mean, thing I, or a celebrity thing, whatever. It, it leads, to, I think, that I mean, it leads to better people who are more analytical and thoughtful, but I think that leads to better art and to better audiences. And so, speaking of audiences, uh, what can folks look forward to in Cincinnati uh, at the Taft? Uh, a, a lot like the special, or um, some new stuff, uh, some talk different topics. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, in terms of point of view, that is what it is. I mean, I am who I am, so that that's not going to change. But in terms of, yeah, there's definitely going to be different types of material. It's going to be increasingly personal, which has been a goal of mine to just get bring more of myself into it. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the topics generally that I'd like to talk about, be it race or gender or anything else, you know, that's like that seems big and heavy and that we shouldn't talk about. That's where I generally like to go because I feel like that, that's a challenge. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely going to be part of it. But, you know, for me, I'm excited just because I've never played Cincinnati, which is kind of shocking. I've been doing this for, God, like 15 years, 20 years and touring actively for over a decade. Like the idea that I've never played Cincinnati is kind of strange. So it, I'm, it's about time, and I'm, I'm excited yeah. to play the Taft. And I have no idea what Cincinnati audiences are like. I'm going it blind, but I'm kind of excited about that. You know, it proves to, it'll be a challenge. It'll be interesting. It's a new audience, and um, I'm super excited about it. I think you'll do well. We do have two clubs in town, and uh, one of the clubs is. Um more so the like the the comedy club, more like an Acme in Minneapolis if you're familiar or uh, I'm trying to think of another example because that's the other paper I write for where it, where people, the the crowd really knows comedy and the other club right. is one of the chains where people are like hey let's go see a comedy show which is fine but between right. those two I think you you have a very educated comedy audience here and I think you'll uh, you'll do quite well uh, even though the city has a reputation for being a little closed minded <laughs> and a little uh, a little thin skinned on some things but um, I think you'll I think you do quite well here. Well, that sounds great, because that's one of the hopes. That's why I wanted to book the show. Yeah, terrific. Well, great. Well, uh, and if you're up in Minneapolis uh, on part of the tour, we can reuse this uh, for that paper as well. <laughs> yeah, so um, d- double my money there. Great. Well, it was great talking to you, Hurry. Uh, great conversation. 
Thank you so much. Thanks so much for reaching out. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks to Hurry Kondabolu for being on the show. You can catch Hurry in Indianapolis, the Helium Comedy Club, March 10th. Uh, he's doing this whole big tour here of these uh, one-offs. He's uh, here in Cincinnati, the Taft Theater, the next night, March 11th. March 12th, he's in Oklahoma City. And that, that's okay with us, as my dad would say. Uh, Oklahoma City is okay with us, uh, March 12th. And then if you everything you need to know about Hari Kondabolu, please go to harikondabolu.com. Hari is spelled, it's pronounced Turi, I'm sorry. It's pronounced Turi, and it's H-A-R-I, and the last name is K-O-N-D-A-B-O-L-U. I'm sure if you Google it, Google will fix your spelling if you're driving right now and can't do that. But yeah, do check him out. Uh, funny guy, uh, insightful guy, and uh, and check out this podcast too, Political Reactive, with the uh, also very hilarious W. Kamal Bell. All right, so uh, let me see, where have we arrived here? We've arrived at the Song of the Week, I reckon. Song of the Week is a song from, again, from the Tribe of Good. Discover these guys just accidentally on Freegal. It's a group of, um, as the name would imply, it's a kind of loose affiliation of musicians in London. I think there's one guy that produces the whole thing. He just pulls friends and uh, other musicians in, and uh, the, the we played Broken Toys back in the fall. That was a cracking tune, and uh, almost Jackson 5-like. Uh, this one is a little more, I don't know, I don't know who this kind of sounds like, but it, it puts me in the mind of something, and I can't think of what it is. But the song's called 25 Miles from Vegas. Kind of a, I don't know, maybe... 90s, early 2000s kind of dancey pop tune, but uh, it's good. It doesn't sound a whole bunch like the Broken Toys tune, but it kind of fits in with it. It's our track of the week, though, on PF State Recorder. This is the Tribe of Good, 25 miles from Vegas. PF State Recorder, so long, and thanks for listening. The morning love.